and you will move into their cities and into their homes. Then, in other words, in other words, when you have conquered, totally conquered the land of Israel, Moshe, Moshe, Moshe is talking to the Jews that are on the verge of conquering Israel. He says, when you have conquered Israel, then you have a special mitzvah that applies immediately when you have control over the land. And that is, Shalosh Arim Tavdilach. You shall designate three cities in the borders of Israel, within the borders of Israel. The land that God is going to give you in that land, I want you to designate three cities. And then I want you to create highways with signs, sign, uh, road signs that will show people how to get to these cities. And I want these cities to be equidistant from each other. In other words, that they, they should be distributed through the land of Israel, equal from one another. So they should be distributed, distributed equally through the land of Israel. The land that God is giving you. And what is the purpose of these three cities? Every murderer must flee to these to one of these three cities. Cities of refuge or sanctuary cities in modern lingo. Now, which murderer can flee there and save his own life? Somebody who kills his friend unintentionally or kills somebody unintentionally he has no motive and no reason. He has no grudge or any hatred against the victim. And the, 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 the killing was totally, totally accidental. The Torah gives an example. Imagine a person comes with his friend into a forest. To chop wood. He takes the axe to chop the tree, and the handle of the axe and the blade of the axe separate while he's swinging. And the blade flies and hits somebody and he dies. Then that killer should run to one of these three cities and then he will be able to continue living. Why is his life in danger? Because a vengeful relative might light after this guy, chase after the killer. Because he'll be enraged. And he'll catch him. Because he couldn't get, it to, couldn't get to one of these cities of refuge. Because it was too far. And the, the relative will kill him. He does not deserve to be killed because this wasn't a premeditated murder, it was an accident. Al Cain, therefore, I am commanding you that you shall designate these three cities. Okay. That is the mitzvah. That is the mitzvah which is discussed. One of the mitzvahs, one of the many mitzvahs which is discussed in this week's parsha. So uh, the, the literal legal definition of this mitzvah is if a person kills with no intention for violence at all. Not like a person who hits somebody and the guy trips and he falls down and dies. 
That's not, that's not, I don't think, subject to these cities. We're not talking about somebody who commits manslaughter. We're talking about somebody that had no violence, no intention at all, and killed somebody. Then, um, he or she has to run to one of these cities. And there is like, you know, when, when you were kids, you played tag. There was a place called Base, Basis, whatever, where you're safe. And these cities is base, and nobody can, nobody can hurt the killer when he's in these cities. And how long does he have to stay or she stay in these cities? Until the Kohen Gadol passes away. The Jewish people had a high priest. And the killer has to stay there until the high priest passes away. Could be a hundred years. Could be one year. Don't know. It says in the uh, Gemara that the mother of the Kohen Gadol... Uh, very often would send gifts to all of the exiled people in these cities, begging them, please don't pray for my son's early death. Because they had to wait till the Kohen Gadol dies. Don't close that door. Are you guys hot or cold or nothing? No, very good. Nice. Okay. But so, Rabbi, in, the, in the good old days, yeah. the law, the, law, the rules were uh, eye for an eye. Okay. So if it's a lesser, lesser crime, they send them to exile to the sanctuary city. But it has to be like a like a trial, sort of a trial. You go to the sanctuary city for five years, four years, adultery or something like that. What? Those uh, uh, sanctuary city people need to stay there until the, the priests uh, die? Yeah, 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 and there's no court case. The court case happens after the person gets to the sanctuary city. Then there's a court case to see whether it was an intentional murder or if it really was an accident. And if it turns out that it was an intentional murder, then they take, they take him out of the sanctuary city and they bring him to court and they try him and convict him or they don't convict him. But they try him for murder. If it turns out that it was completely unintentional, then they tell him, yeah, you have to stay here until the Kohen Gadol dies. Yeah. But there's no sanctuary for adultery. No, no, no. Yeah. This is only for this. No. Only for that. This is yeah. only for accidental murder. And I don't know the details right now. I didn't get a chance to look up the details before the class. But not all accidental murders um, are, are exiled to the, to the sanctuary city. It has to be, that's what the Torah brings an example. You notice the Torah brings an example, it's always because the Torah wants you to know that it is this kind of circumstance that the Torah considers to be an accidental murder. Like if a person, if you, just give you an example, if a person is driving on the highway and somebody runs out in front of them, that's not considered to be an accidental murder. Because they didn't, there wasn't, there wasn't even any act that they did. So that's considered to be even less than an accidental murder. I don't think that such a person would have to go to the... Um, to, so it's a very fine line between manslaughter and, and completely unwitting, non-intentional. There wasn't even any particular act. person jumps in front of your car. So somewhere in the middle, so the courts would have to examine it to decide A, if it was actually murder, and B, if it was so completely unintentional that the guy doesn't even have to stay in the city of refuge, he can go home. But somewhere in the middle, but all of them would have to run to the city of refuge first, and then the courts would make their, then the courts would make their decision. 
And yet, if the courts decided that this person is subject to the Irmikla, to the city of uh, refuge, then he would have to stay there however long it took for the Kohen Gadol to live out his life, and that's just the way it is. Which brings up a very, a very pressing question that I think everybody, everybody's probably asking themselves, which is, if a person did something unintentionally, why should he suffer? Exile is not, it's not execution, it's not even imprisonment, but in a way it actually is imprisonment and it is definitely a consequence and a punishment. Well, but he didn't do anything wrong. I mean, he didn't do anything intentional, so what's the problem? So we have here an instance, I believe the only instance, where the Torah holds somebody accountable for an unintentional sin. You know, there's uh, only one instance where a person can fulfill a mitzvah only unintentionally. Anybody know what it is? There's only one mitzvah that can be performed only unintentionally. There is no way to perform it intentionally. Um, you know, Moshe? There is a law for Jewish farmers that certain parts of their crop have to be left for the poor. The corners or... And one of the, one of the crops that needs to be left for the poor is a, a bundles that you left that you forgot in the field. You know, you harvested and you took, it all, you took it all home, and you realize that you forgot a bundle in the field. So the Torah says that's called chikha. You're not allowed to go and retrieve it. You have to uh, leave it for the poor. So there's a mitzvah that can only be done un- unintentionally. And here is the only sin, the only sin, unintentional sin for which there is a consequence, and a pretty serious consequence. So this opens up a whole discussion on why the Torah would hold somebody accountable for doing something unintentional. Even though this is the only case where there is a consequence, but this, this gives us an, an a insight into God's mind that God is not happy when we do things that are wrong, even when we do them unintentionally. Just most of the time, he understands that we're fallible and human, so he doesn't punish us. But this gives us an... In- Even the fact that there is a carbon, there is a sacrifice that needs to be brought when you do a, a sin unintentionally, you have to bring a, an atonement sacrifice. Why? You didn't do anything wrong. So it seems, it, it, we see from here that God does get hurt and disappointed when a person does something wrong, even if they didn't mean to do it. So the, uh, the Rebbe explained like this. A person could say... You know, I didn't mean to do it. I didn't mean to do it. I did it by accident. So you say, look, have you ever by accident jumped into a burning fire and hurt yourself? By accident, done by accident. Of course, the person will laugh and will say, no, of course not. Of course, don't jump into fires by accident. So, so you say to the person, look, you are a body and a soul. Your body has a natural instinct. And that natural instinct teaches you that you don't jump into fires because you're going to hurt yourself. Your soul also has a natural instinct. Your soul has as much of a natural instinct to stay away from sin as your body does to stay away from injury. You don't even need to teach a person to stay away from fire. All he needs is one experience, and no one needs to tell him anything, and he'll stay away from fire for the rest of his life. So your soul has the same kind of instinct in regards to spiritual damage. So your soul, no matter who you are, no matter what you know or don't know, your soul instinctively stays away from doing something wrong. The fact that you say, well, I did it by accident, I didn't realize, I didn't know, means that you are completely out of touch with your neshama. Because a tzaddik, 
a person who's completely in touch with his neshama, for example, wouldn't do something wrong, even by accident. Theoretically. Because the neshama doesn't allow, just like the body doesn't allow a person to jump into a fire, unless they're trying to kill themselves. But if, but, but if they're not, they don't jump in and say, oh, I didn't mean it. It's, it's, it's not even a question of meaning it or not meaning it. You don't do it. You would never do it. So God is saying to, the, to a Jew, to every Jew, I want you to know how lofty your neshama is, your soul is, that there is a part of you that would never, could never, cannot, doesn't have the ability to sin. Just doesn't have the ability, just like you don't have the ability to jump into a fire. Your neshama doesn't have the ability to hurt somebody, even, by unintention, even unintentionally. Now, of course, you're human, I understand, and therefore, I'm not going to punish you, but I want you to know how high you could reach, how, how high, how lofty is your spiritual potential. That with enough hard work, enough long, lifelong effort, you could come to a, to a place where you wouldn't hurt somebody even by accident. It reminds me of a story that my father loves to tell about a guy that um, was accused of, of stealing. And the rumor went around that he's the guy, the guy stole from me, this guy stole from me. And everybody was saying, you heard this guy stole from him. So the Rebbe summoned him, a Rebbe, a Rebbe, whoever the Rebbe was, summoned this guy. And he says to the Chassid, what is this I'm hearing, that rumors that you stole from the guy? So he says, Rebbe, it's not true. The Rebbe says, I know it's not true. Of course I know it's not true. You don't have to tell me that it's not true. But why am I hearing rumors about you that you stole? In other words, you should be above suspicion. You should be above the ability for anybody to believe that you could steal. People would say, it's impossible, he doesn't steal. The fact that people are suspecting you wrongly, it's their, it's their sin for suspecting you wrongly, but it's your reputation which needs to be worked on. Otherwise, it wouldn't, the rumor would never get started. So it, on the one hand, the person says, this is not fair, that's ridiculous, anybody can start a rumor. Yeah, 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 it's true. You're not held accountable, that's not the point. The point is that the Rebbe, taking a, 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 note, a page from the Torah, is holding the chassid to a higher standard. And that standard is that people shouldn't even be able to lie about you that you did something wrong. And you shouldn't even be able to say that you did something wrong by accident, unintentionally. That's how beyond reproach you should be. So... In this case too, the Torah is giving us in one instance, in the worst possible sin, which is murder, the Torah makes an exception and, and holds you accountable, even if you did it by accident, in order to teach you about all other sin, that uh, even if you do something wrong by accident, it's still maybe not a cause for punishment, but it certainly is a cause for self-reflection, it's a cause for self-assessment, it's a cause for you to do tshuva, because there's a part of you inside that uh, has an inclination to evil, and you're not tightly, bo- tightly bound enough with your neshama to feel the natural um, allergy to doing something like that. So therefore, work on yourself, try to become a little bit better, and go to the city of refuge, where you'll have plenty of time to reflect. So now, that's the uh, literal halachic mitzvah of the cities of refuge. Now, this is the second time that the cities of refuge are mentioned. The first time is a few months ago in a different parsha, a different weekly portion. And in that weekly portion, the Torah distinguishes again between an intentional and an, un- and an unintentional sin. And, um, and this, is what the, this is how the Torah says. The Torah says, if a man ambushes 
plots the murder of another person, then he should be murdered. Then he should be executed. And a man who does not plot the murder, but rather God entrapped him, Elokim inaliado, God entrapped him, then I will give you cities for you to run away and, and be safe because you didn't do it on purpose. God entrapped him, meaning like the guy in the forest who un- unintentionally, the blade flies out of the handle and, um, and God arranges for somebody to be walking by at that moment. So really God is the one who caused you to kill somebody. You didn't. You didn't mean to kill. But God is the one who arranged, it, arranged for it to happen. So... So the Torah says, Elokim inaliado, God entrapped your hand and caused it to happen. So therefore, you can go and run away to one of the cities. So the Hebrew words that are key over here are, Elokim inaliado v'samti lechamakom. And if you, if you trim it down a little bit more, inaliado v'samti lecha. You are entrapped and I will provide for you. If you take those Hebrew words, ina liyado v'samti lecha, the first letters of the word spell, ina liyado v'samti lecha, Aleph, ina liyado v'samti Aleph, lecha, liyado, v'samti lecha. Vav, vav, lamed. Aleph, lamed, vav, lamed. Yeah. Which spells, Elul. Exactly. So this is what the Rebbe said at the Fabrengian, that the month of Elul is the city of refuge in time, just as there were cities of refuge in space. In, uh, geographically, you had these cities, actual geographical locations, that were a city of refuge, that were a sanctuary for somebody who sinned by accident. But chronologically in time, there is a certain period of time which is a safe space for people who sin unintentionally, which is Elul, the month of Elul. The 30-day period of Elul is a city of refuge in time for us to find safety from all of the stupid things that we did all year long by accident. How, how are we going to find a city like this? Is it like... Reading Everything, yes, yes. Everything that you can think of. Every good deed that you do in Elul counts for so much more than if you would do the same good deed in any other month of the year. And I'll tell you why in one moment. But first, let's just, but first, let's just uh, t- uh, finish up this one thought. That it inaliado means that God entrapped you. You have a phone that you could join this meeting with? Because this iPad is about to die. You have a yeah. smartphone? Yeah. You have the link? Yeah. Okay, so just join the meeting and we'll use it instead of the iPad is about to die. Um, God entrapped you. It means that if you, if you sinned by accident. But the Rebbe pointed out that actually even a person who murdered intentionally would initially run to the Irmiklat. Before he was tried, even somebody who murdered intentionally would run to the Irmiklat and find safety there until, the, until he's brought to trial. That means that there is, to a certain degree, even a person who sins on purpose, intentionally. It's, like people, it's like people run, like especially in, uh, in Israel, when they run after terrorists, 
Yeah. So the terrorists, what they do, they go to the mosque. Right, they exactly. Like will touch them. Right, right, because the mosque is like is like base. You can't go over there. So, but they're, they're, yes, and in, Ju- in Judaism, it's uh, it's uh, the ear miklat. Irmiklat, yeah. Uh, Rabbi, do you, can you give an example about the uh, irmiklat of somebody uh, 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 from the Torah who went to the irmiklat? Hold on one second. Sorry, guys. Hold on one second. Okay. Hello? Okay. Okay. Um, an example... Sanctuary city, yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't remember any stories offhand of somebody in the Torah that went to a Ir Miklat. Who am I? Who am I? I don't know. But so the, the so the Rebbe pointed out that even a person who sins on purpose has a. You can't hear me. Okay, okay. All right, guys. Sorry about that. So the Rebbe pointed out that even a person who sins intentionally, there is a certain there is a certain safety that even he can find in the ear miklat, and you find the truth of that in the words inaliado. If God entrapped you, then obviously it's not your fault. Now let's 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 point out that this is a very delicate um, point that's about to be made, and everybody I'm sure understands that. When we say that God entrapped you. We say, okay, a guy was swinging an axe in the forest trying to chop wood, and God arranged for a guy to walk by at that moment when the handle flew out of the, when the blade flew out of the handle, and God arranged for the guy to get killed by your action. But the truth is, between you and me, every sin that a person does, God caused it. Because why does a person sin? We just said that every Jew is in possession of a godly soul that is allergic to sin, and therefore, by nature, we don't want to sin. Just like by nature, we don't want to hurt ourselves physically. By nature, we don't want to hurt ourselves spiritually. So by nature, a Jew does not want to sin. That's why we say all the time in Chabad, and people think it's cute. It's not cute. A person says, no, I don't keep kosher. That's not true. Of course you keep kosher. Yeah, but just today I had a cheeseburger. That's okay. You still keep kosher. The fact that you had a cheeseburger is very confusing because you are a Jew, and a Jew keeps kosher. Not because you ought to. Not because you should be orthodox, but because just like a person who says, I jump into fires. No, you don't. No person jumps into fires. Oh, but I just jumped into a fire. Okay, that doesn't mean that, people, that, doesn't mean that any normal person jumps into a fire. It doesn't make it normal just because a person does it. The, the human uh, condition still dictates that you don't jump into a fire. The fact that you do means that you're confused. But your natural state still dictates that you don't jump into fires. Even if you say you do. If, if, if you go to a doctor and you say, oh, you know what I do? I jump into burning buildings because I want to see what it feels like. Is the doctor going to say, okay, I respect that? No. The doctor is going to help you to overcome that. I just heard, a, a, I just, a Friday night I told, a, I told one of my favorite stories um, about this month of El. Let me, tell, let me show you the story. And it's, it's got amazing depth. The story is that there was one of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's, I don't remember who he was, a little boy, before he became a Rebbe, he was the Rebbe's son, and he was a little boy, and he was walking around the shul in the month of Elul. 
and during this month. And he heard a few of the chassidim talking to each other. And, and one of the chassid, one, one chassid said to the other, my goodness, it's already deep in Elul, and I haven't yet prepared my piafkes. Oi, well, my, I, gotta get, I gotta get going. What? My, my, uh, right, what, I haven't yet prepared my piafkes. So the little boy, he didn't know what's piafkes. But he hears two chassidim saying this to each other, so he figured that it must be some adult um, term for tshuva, for repentance. It's deep in Elul, means it's almost Rosh Hashanah, and I have not yet prepared my piafkes. He thought it must be like, I remember when I was a kid, I used to hear my parents talking about Newark Airport. I thought it was like a new, an adult way of saying New York, you know? Like, I tried to tell people, oh, I'm going to Newark. Because that's how adults say New York. So the kid thought that piafkes is like an adult way of saying tshuva. Tshuva meaning repentance and atonement. So he thought that the one guy was saying to the other, my goodness, it's already deep in Elul, and I haven't yet done tshuva. I haven't yet repented for all my sins. So the boy, at the next time there was a, there was a, um, a group of chassidim talking to each other, the boy marches himself over to the group, and with all the authority of a little kid, he says to them, chassidim, it's already deep in Elul. Have you prepared your piafkes? So the chassidim looked at him. This was the Rebbe's kid. So the chassidim looked at him. They said, oh, that probably came from the Rebbe. Probably the kid heard it from his father, the Rebbe. Let's discuss what kind of depth is the message over here. Now, what is piafkes? Piafkes was a, a, a term for leeches. You know, doctors in those days, today they use penicillin, antibiotics. In those days, leeches. Whatever you had, leeches. You have a headache? Leeches. Earache? Leeches. You lost a foot? Leeches. Everything is leeches because they would put the leeches on you. A bankus, they call it bankus. They would put the leeches on you, and the leeches would, would suck out all of the poisoned blood, all of the sick blood, and then it would leave you with only healthy bloodstream. So, so a doctor, any doctor with a good reputation, before the winter sets in, needs to go to the Piafkes merchants, who are going and dredging the rivers and getting these Piafkes, and buy a supply for the, for the winter. So one doctor was saying to the other, it's already deep in Elul, meaning it's almost winter, and I haven't yet gotten my leech supply in order. And the boy completely misunderstood it. He thought it meant something spiritual. The chassidim hear him, the chassidim say, the chassidim see a little boy comes, the Rebbe's kid comes and says, it's almost, it's the middle of Elul, and you guys haven't prepared your leeches. So they sat down, and they opened up a little bottle of vodka, and they all said l'chaim, and they said, what is the meaning that we're supposed to learn? And they decided that the meaning is, that's tshuva. Tshuva is what? Tshuva is removing all the poisonous energy from inside of you, leaving you pure. And that's what the Rebbe was saying, that just like this time of the year, doctors are going to get their leeches ready, chassidim should be getting their, their spiritual leeches ready. Now, I believe that the, the father, the Rebbe, heard it later and said, okay, that's a good message. And there was a big misunderstanding and everybody thought it was funny. But then at the end, you see we're still telling the story 200 years later, it turned into a deep story. Now what's so deep about it, other than the cute aspect of it, that a little kid, other than the fact that it's very cute, what is the depth of the story? If it was just cute, it wouldn't have survived 250 years. So the depth of the story for sure, in one, in one, from one angle, is this. A person who sins and doesn't want to do tshuva because the person says, this is who I am. Is like a person who goes to the doctor and says to the doctor, I have a, I have a gallbladder infection. 
And the doctor says, okay, let's remove the gallbladder. And the person says, no, this is who I am. This is who I am. Or a person who has a headache. This is who I am. Cool, it's cool. I am a headache. I am an infection. A doctor would first have to explain to the patient, you are not a sickness. You are not a disease. Elama, you have a disease. The difference between being a disease and having a disease is a huge difference. First of all, you have hope. If you, if you are a disease, there's no hope. There's no hope. This is who you are and that's it. There's no way to cure who you are. But if you have a disease, then there is hope. There's optimism. You can go for treatment. And secondly, if you have a disease, then you want to get rid of it. It's not you. It's a foreign object. You want to get rid of it. So a person who says, I don't keep kosher. I don't keep kosher. I'm a non-kosher keeping Jew. No, no, no. Yes, you have eaten non-kosher. But do you not keep kosher? Any more than a from Jew, an Orthodox Jew, who, who accidentally turns a light off on his way out of the bathroom, which we've all done on Shabbos. Come out of the bathroom, turn off the light. One second later, oh, it's Shabbos, I forgot it's Shabbos. Do you then walk around saying, okay, I'm a non-Shabbos keeping person. That's it. I am a non-Shabbos observer. No, you turned off a light on Shabbos. Did you mean to do it? No, you're a Jew, you keep Shabbos. The same thing could be said for a person who wasn't raised Shomer Shabbat, or even a person who was, and for whatever reason decides, I'm not keeping Shabbos anymore. Okay, but you keep Shabbos. You do. You are not a, a, a disease. You have a disease called laziness, ignorance, uh, challenges, you're in a labor camp, you're in Siberia, you can't keep Shabbos, whatever the point is. But you keep Shabbos. A Jew keeps Shabbos. A Jew wears tzitzis. A Jew makes kiddush. A Jew eats matzah on Pesach. Imagine a Jew says, I don't eat matzah on Pesach. Of course you do. Of course you eat matzah on Pesach. Then why didn't you? I don't know. But you do. That's, that is the first step towards tshuva is to acknowledge that the sin is not you. You don't identify with the sin. You don't identify as the sin. You just are a good person who did something, who did something that's not, not perfect. So the same thing is here. A person who does something on purpose, why does he do it? I'm sorry, a person who sins, even on purpose, why did he do it? Not because that's his natural thing, but because God gave him a Yetzirah. God gave us an evil inclination that gives us the inclination to do things that is not natural to us. Imagine, a, imagine a, a guy's mother gets on his nerves, calling him all the time. What are you doing? Why aren't you doing this? Why is your wife doing this? Why, blah, blah. And, he, and he picks up, he yells at his mother, I hate you! Does a person hate his mother? He's angry, she's driving him crazy, she provoked him, she incites him, but a man does not hate his mother. Even if he screams and shouts that he does. Okay, then there's, then there's something very wrong here. But a man does not hate his mother. She gave him life, she gave him his life. A person to say, yeah, I don't care about God. That makes no sense. God created you. What do you love in your life? You like, you like uh, marijuana? What do you like? You like amusement parks? You like flying to Paris? You like whatever you like, God gave it to you. If, you, if God didn't create you, you wouldn't enjoy any of the enjoyments that you have in life. And now you come and say you don't like God? It doesn't make any sense. Because whatever you, whatever you do like is from Him. So you can't just say, I don't like Him. So a person who says, I don't keep the Torah. I don't keep the Torah. Of course you keep the Torah. In your, in your soul, you are the Torah. 
you and the Torah and God are one. The fact that you, you unintentionally or intentionally turned off a light on Shabbos, that's because there's a dichotomy between our bodies and our souls. But our identity is as Jews. So therefore, even a person who sins intentionally during the month of Elul can perform tshuva and find refuge in the spiritual city of refuge and be forgiven in advance of Rosh Hashanah. Say, Rosh Hashanah, you can come and not have to think about sin, but rather think about doing good and, and then better. Why? Why does this month of Elul work so marvelously? So here's the, here's the answer. This is one of the greatest, most famous, most, most uh, world-changing teachings of the Alter Rebbe. And that is like, the Alter Rebbe said, why is it that during the month of Elul, Jews feel different? And, and uh, any, any Jew that's, has, that's connected with the program at all, like all of you who have heard in these classes and know that the month of Elul is something special. Something special. It's not Rosh Hashanah yet. It's not Yom Kippur. It's not the awesome 10 days of repentance between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Why do Jews get so worked up and excited in the month of Elul? And he answered, he said, because the Jewish person, a Jewish person has a soul, and the soul is like a receiver for signals. And when, the, when there is a signal in the air, your soul picks it up. That's why on Shabbat, there's a special signal in the air. God releases a certain amount of holiness into the world on Shabbat, and you feel special on Shabbat. And same thing is on the holidays. And the same thing is during the month of El. <coughs> There is a special spiritual uh, revelation that happens during the month of Elul, and your soul feels it. So even if your mind doesn't know it, your soul feels it, and you feel, and you feel uplifted. You feel spiritually excited. So the Alter Rebbe said, and now you're going to ask, then why isn't the whole month of Elul one long holiday? If the definition of a holiday is a revelation of a certain special energy, spiritual energy, that's what makes it a special day, then why isn't the full month of Elul a holiday. And it is not a holiday. I mean, you can work, you can go to work during the month. It's just, you know, it's like a regular month. For those who don't know better, it's just that there's a special tshuva atmosphere, you know, that you can... But why isn't it a holiday? So to answer that question about this contradiction between the fact that there is a special sensitivity in the ear, the special signal that your soul's, that your soul's receiver is picking up, and on the other hand, it's just normal regular days. You drive your car, you go to work, el. So to answer that, that contradiction, the Alter Rebbe taught a parable. And the parable is like this. There is a king who goes for a grand tour of his kingdom. Or he went for a trip. He's out in his kingdom. And now he's on his way back home. On his way back home, he's passing through the countryside. And in the countryside, that's where the country bumpkins live. That's where the simplest people live. In the countryside, farmers, peasants, living in the countryside. And they're out in the fields and they're working. As they say, they're outstanding in their fields. They're outstanding in their fields. They're working, they're in their overalls and their boots. And they're working with their pitchforks and their, and their uh, shovels. And the king says to his entourage, I want to stop in the fields and I want to go see the people. I want to visit the people in the field. Now this, the entourage says to the king, this is not the way of uh, royalty. If you want to meet these people, then we'll put you up in the Waldorf Astoria and we'll hang up posters everywhere that says the king is in, is in town. Anybody that wants to see the king should come, to the, should come to the ballroom of the Waldorf Astoria. And the king says, why? 
And the entourage says, because, Your Majesty, first of all, people should come to you. You shouldn't be going to them. Secondly, when you go to them, they're not going to be prepared for a royal visit. They're going to be in their overalls. If you go to the, to the uh, Waldorf and you make an announcement that whoever wants to see you could come to the ballroom, then people will go home. And they'll take off their overalls and put on their suit and shower and, and clean themselves up and, and come to you presentable for a royal audience. You going to them, you're going to see them in their schmutz, you're going to see them in their dirty clothing, in their work clothes, and in their work environment, and they're not going to be in the, in the presence of mine. And the king said, exact, that's exactly why I want to go now. I don't want them to change. I want to see them as they are. I want to see my people. I don't want to see them dressed up for me. I want to see my people. So the king goes to the uh, fields, and the word spreads that the king is in the field, or in the Alter Rebbe's words, HaMelech Nimtza Basadeh. The king is found in the field. And Kol Misherotze, anybody who wants, Yachol Leritkarev, can come close to the king. And the king, Umekabel et Kulam Besever Panim Yafot. And the king, who is in a very relaxed mode, I mean, he's in the countryside. And he's very, very relaxed, very informal. The king accepts everybody who wants to come near him, and he receives them all, which means with a beaming, smiling face. And they can ask for whatever they want, and the king grants whatever they want, because the king is in a benevolent and, and fantastic mood. And the entourage tells the people, you better, you better chaparayin, as they say in Yiddish, chaparayin. You better grab the opportunity because as soon as the king leaves and goes back to his palace, then all bets are off. To get an audience with the king is not so simple. And even if you get an audience with the king, you have to come presentable and you have to present your case. And the king is sitting on a, on a throne of judgment. And of course, that is Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we say, are days of awe, judgment days. But Elul is that period of time where the king is out in the field. We don't go to him. He comes to us. So there is definitely a tremendous revelation. But the revelation allows us to continue our ordinary work week because the king is in the field. So the month of Elul is a month of extraordinary favor where the king is not in a judgment mode. The king is in a benevolent mode in a loving mode. And the king wants to see everybody. And he wants to see everybody. And he doesn't want you to change out of your weekday clothes. He wants to see you, as they say in Yiddish, he wants to see you exactly as you are. And come to him. He wants to see you. Don't be, don't be afraid. And, and he's going to give you a big smile. And he's going to listen to you because he's not in a rush. You don't have you know, your 30 seconds audience. You can talk to him as long as you want. It's cool. So this is called Hamelach Basada. It's a time of great love. Just this week, I saw something I never saw before, where the Rebbe said at a Fabrenian, you, you could justifiably ask, why don't we say, Misha Nichnas Elul, Marbim Besimcha? That when the month of Elul starts, we increase in joy. If, the, if this is the mode, if this is the reality, if this is what's going on in the month of Elul, that the God is, is uh, embracing us with such unconditional closeness and love, then why wouldn't there be a, a Jewish custom to 
elevate our levels of joy during this month, it would seem that there wouldn't be a better month. Which the question itself is so revolutionary because Elul has, has for many communities traditionally always been a fearsome month. Elul Magiat, I said Tshuva. Elul is here. You got to do Tshuva. It's almost a Shoshana. And the rabbis would, would intimidate the communities and frighten the communities that it's Elul, it's Elul, and screaming, and f- because Rosh Hashanah is coming. Like judgment day is coming. You have 30 days to get your case together. Talk to your lawyers. Do your spiritual accounting. Because Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the days of judgment are coming, and God is going to decide who's going to live and who's going to die. And, who's gonna... and people would shake with fear during the month of Elul. Shake with fear. For hundreds of years. Until the Altarebbe came along and he said, El is not a time for fear. It's not even a time for awe. That is Yamim Noraim, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, is a time for great awe. God is in a seat of judgment, but not El. El is the Mikabalat Kulam Besefer Panim Yafot, Anil Dodi, Vidodi Li. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. El is a time of love. So for the Rebbe to say, shouldn't Elul have a tradition of increased joy? The people, there's so many Jews in the world who would hear that and go, joy in Elul? Increased joy in Elul? No joy in Elul. There is no joy in Elul. Mighty Casey has struck out. So uh, the Rebbe says, yes, there should be increased joy. Why is there no custom? And what's his answer? His answer is, the kind of joy which is expected in Elul can not even be contained by a custom, and it can't even be contained by a mitzvah, it's higher than both of them. In other words, the joy should be so great that it can't be commanded, because it's too lofty. So God leaves it to us to have the sensitivity to know and to feel what's happening during this month, and then naturally react with a great sense of exuberance, because what a month! What a period, what an opportunity, what an amazing, amazing time. So that's why during the month of Elul, we call it a month of refuge, a city of refuge in time, even for a person who sinned intentionally. Because during this time, you go to the king, the king is very laid back, and you apologize, and you say, I'm sorry. The king is like, okay, no problem. I know you didn't mean it. I know you, you, were, you were in a moment of, you know, you... Lost your mind for a minute. I get it. Good. You're done. You're not going to go back to it. No problem. I love you. Come here. Let me give you a hug. That's not like Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is a little, bit more, a little bit more challenging than that. Elul is a time to get all of your sins forgiven so that by the time you go to Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, you're not focusing anymore on getting your sins forgiven. Now you're focusing on trying to do more and better and brighter and higher and deeper and not wallowing in sin during these holy days of awe. So this is the opportunity which is called Elul. This is the refuge in time. God tells us there is such a thing called Elul. But there's only one last caveat before we, before we finish up here. And that caveat is the cities of refuge, you have to go to them. Even if the king comes to the field I remember the first time I heard the expression, you can lead a horse to the water, but you can't make him drink. <laughs> My father took me to buy a suit, and the guy in the suit store showed me one suit, another suit, a third suit. I didn't like any of them. 
He says to my father, you can bring the horse to the water, but you can't make him drink. And my 11-year-old mind went, whoa, that's a cool saying. So the king comes to the field, and the king is ready to be, greet everybody. But he's not going to run after you in the field. I mean, you've got to take a little bit of an initiative. And in Yiddish they say, I mean, you've got to do something, take a step towards him, walk over to him. I mean, he's in your field. Go over, say hello. So the month of Elul is a city of refuge, but the cities of ref- refuge work for whoever will actually go to the city of refuge. Go, to, go there. And then all sins are forgiven. All, all, all offenses are forgiven. So this is the month. We're only in the third day of the month. There's still 27 days left. Amazing, amazing time. This is a time to make sure that all your doors have mezuzahs. Make sure you're putting on tefillin every day. Make sure that you're looking out for people that need your help. Make sure you're giving tzedakah. Make sure you're eating kosher and celebrating Shabbos and Yom Tif and Everything. This is an opportunity. If everything, anything you ever wanted to do to, to upgrade your Jewish life, the month of Elul is such an amazing opportunity to because you have Hashem's help. You have Hashem's help all past... Is forgiven, it's forgotten. There's only a bright, bright future. But you gotta go, you gotta take advantage, you gotta grab it. Um, and we should. And we should encourage each other to. And, uh, and of course, the, door, the doorway for all of this is the joy that the Debbe referenced. The joy, the joy during this month that helps us to remember all good things when you're in a good mood. When you're in a bad mood, you forget all your plans. You forget everything you wanted to do. You forget all your dreams and hopes and aspirations. But when you're in a good mood, you don't forget. So let's uh, be joyous and happy and utilize these next 27 days to have an amazing spiritual experience. And then when Rosh Hashanah comes, it'll be an even more amazing spiritual experience. And that, my friends, is that. Now let's hear what you have to say.